Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on December 10th, 2017. This is the second Sunday in Advent, and during that season, I was working my way through Luke chapter 1, and I'm preaching again about Zechariah, but I'm contrasting Zechariah's response to the angel Gabriel with Mary's response. And what I'm challenging us to think about in this sermon is, do we treasure our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we treasure God? Do we treasure the things of God, including God's Word? That's what Mary does, and she is an amazing role model for us to follow. Our scripture comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, which I'll read now. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And what happens next? Well, the angel zaps him, right? He, he makes him mute. And we can, if you read down in chapter 1, in verse 62, you'll see that, um, it, that we can infer that the angel also uh, made uh, Zechariah deaf as well. He's unable to hear or speak. Of course, Gabriel is only acting on God's behalf. So it's not that the angel did it uh, so much as God did it. God punished or disciplined Zechariah. Now, what do we make of this? Just last week in the New York Times, there was an article, a personal essay written by Billy Bush. Remember that name from about one year ago? Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it. I have no interest in getting into it. All you need to know for the purposes of this sermon is that Billy Bush is a member of the Bush political dynasty, and he was a rising star at NBC News. He got in trouble, and he got fired. And he wrote an essay about it last week, and I was deeply moved by the last two paragraphs of this essay, which I want to share with you. He wrote, on a personal note, 
This last year has been an odyssey, the likes of which I hope I never to face. I hope uh, to never face again. Anger, anxiety, betrayal, humiliation, many selfish, but I hope understandable emotions. But these have given way to light, both spiritual and intellectual. It's been fortifying. I know that I don't need the accoutrements of fame to know God and be happy. After everything over the last year, I think I'm a better man and father to my three teenage daughters. Far from perfect, but better. As a fellow sinner saved by God's grace alone, all I can say to those words is a hearty amen. When I, what I hear in Bush's words first is an acknowledgement of the destructive insidious power of sin. But in the same breath, I hear the grace of repentance and the mercy of God's discipline. That's right. I said mercy. God's discipline of Billy Bush was merciful. How else would you describe it? I think I'm a better man and father to my three teenage daughters, far from perfect, but better. God did that for him, and it sounds like he knows it. If you are a Christian, please know that God will discipline you. Frequently, the author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs when he writes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The author goes on to say that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, by rendering Zechariah deaf and mute, God disciplined Zechariah. When we consider the difficulty that we sinful human beings often have believing and abiding by God's word, just like Zechariah, we may wonder if God's discipline of Zechariah wasn't overly severe, harsh, perhaps even unfair. But as I told the group this morning in Bible study, that's because we human beings often think that the purpose of life is to be happy, to enjoy ourselves, to be comfortable, to glorify ourselves instead of living for God's glory alone. Regardless, I doubt Zechariah believed God was treating him unfairly. Like Billy Bush, I'm sure, Zechariah could look back over this season of God's discipline, which lasted nine months until John the Baptist was born. He could look back on that season in his life and be thankful because as with Bush, God used this experience to make him a better man, a more faithful man, a man who trusted in the Lord more deeply and not to mention made him a better father to his newborn son. John, when God disciplines us 
and he will, we can be confident that God will show us the same kind of mercy. Thank God. But let me put a pin in this discussion of God's discipline for a moment and come back to it later. For now, I want to address a question that you that might have arisen in your mind as you heard today's scripture, which is, does Gabriel and God hold Mary to a different standard than Zechariah? Now, why do I say that? Because when Gabriel announces to Mary what God's going to do, that that God is going to conceive a child miraculously and he's going to be Messiah and son of God, savior of the world. Mary responds with a question, which sounds kind of sort of like the question that Zechariah asked. She said, how will this be since I am a virgin? Is it Mary expressing doubt? Is is her question really so different from Zechariah's question? Yet there's no consequences for her asking this question. In fact, she gets the sign that she's looking for, right? I mean, the the angel says, you'll find that your your relative Elizabeth is, is six months pregnant, even though she's past the point of getting pregnant. Um, is the question so different from Zechariah's? And, and the answer is, Yes, it's, it's drastically different. Zechariah was saying in so many words, God, I don't really believe that you have the power to do this. So can you just give me a sign that it's really going to happen? Mary, by contrast, says, God, I know that you have the power to do this. I, I know you're going to do this, but, but, but just tell me how. <laughs> Mary's question is not whether God will do it, but how God will do it. And this is just the kind of person that Mary is. She's inquisitive. She ponders things. She thinks through things deeply. We see this in a few different places in these first couple of chapters of Luke. Um, Well, when the angel greets her in today's scripture, Luke tells us that she was trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Later, after Jesus is born and the shepherds come to the manger and they tell Mary and Joseph all about this encounter with all these angels, Luke tells us Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Twelve years later, when Jesus is separated from the family, And Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, um, astounding the Bible teachers there with his wisdom and insight. Luke tells us that Mary treasured up these things in her heart. How do we follow Mary's example today? How do we treasure up the things of God in our hearts today? The answer is Actually, very straightforward. By devoting our lives to God's word, reading it, meditating on it, studying it, memorizing it. In fact, I brought my personal favorite Bible. This is the ESV study Bible. I'm not endorsing it. This is just this happens to be the Bible that I use and love. 
I've been using it. I've been reading it nearly every day of my life for the past six years. It's the first it's the it's the Bible I turn to first whenever I prepare a sermon or a Bible study. I love it. And if you'll notice, it's getting to be a little worse for wear. And the pages, the onion skin paper is getting all wrinkled and torn. In fact, look at this. Uh, I'm in trouble if there's anything important in Luke chapter 13, because it's right here. Someone said, just memorize it. Well, I might have to do that. But you see, pages are starting to come out. The cover's starting to come off. And you know what? I couldn't be happier about it. I couldn't be happier. Um, It is a good sign that my favorite Bible is getting worn out with frequent use. Um, Because, let me tell you a true story. I became a Christian when I was 14 years old. And not too long after that, I saved up money from cutting grass to, uh, to purchase a Bible. It was not unlike this one. It was the um, NIV study Bible. It was a big, thick thing like this. You could kill a yard dog with it. Um, and I loved this Bible. And, I, and I, I read it so often that by the time I graduated high school, the cover had literally fallen off. Pages were torn and missing, and and there was all kinds of writing in the margins of the Bible. And somebody gave me a new leather-bound version of this NIV study Bible as a graduation gift. In fact, my name was engraved in gold on the cover, and it was just a beautiful Bible. But But let me give you the bad news. I never needed to replace that Bible. Through five years of college and well into my professional life, that leather-bound Bible remained in mint condition. What happened to me? I stopped doing what Mary does in Luke chapter 1 and 2. I stopped treasuring God's word. I got distracted by the cares of the world. I got caught up in school, in grades, in in friendships, in professional ambition, in trying to make my way in the world. And I abandoned the love that I had at first. Jesus from Revelation 2-4. I fell out of love with Jesus. There was little joy in my relationship with God during those years. And it lasted for a long season in my life before I repented. And all that trouble started. And I was skeptical too, by the way. I had doubts. I had plenty of doubts, just like Zechariah, even worse And all this trouble started, I promise you, because I stopped treasuring God's word. Bible reading and Bible study became some optional extra feature of my Christian life, which I would shoehorn into my life when there was nothing else more urgent going on. So among other things, my nearly worn out Bible 
reminds me of the good changes that God has wrought in my life by his grace. So my warning to you is don't follow my example. Save yourself the heartache. Follow Mary's example. Continue to treasure God's word. And let me tell you, if you don't have a Bible, or if you have one, you're not reading it, or if you have one, but maybe it's the King James and it's hard to understand, do yourself a favor. Get yourself a Christmas gift this year. Buy yourself a good Bible, maybe even a study Bible, which has some margin notes that help you to understand what's going on. Give it to yourself as a Christmas gift. And I want you to start wearing out your Bible. You can wear yours out alongside mine. And I promise you, God will bless you if you do that. Now let's look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek word of the Israel of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is uh, which means Joshua, which means God saves. And in Matthew's uh, version of the Christmas story, when the angel comes to Joseph, he says, you will name him Jesus for why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, who are his people? Now, you might think that his people are the people of Israel. That's certainly how how uh, Joseph would have understood it. But we understand in light of Christ's life, death and resurrection that we are grafted into Israel, Paul says in Romans chapter 11. We are now a part of Israel through our faith in Christ. So his people, that includes you and me. So Gabriel goes on to tell Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel, that is including you and me. Forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So, what does all that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is our king. It means that Jesus Christ is reigning over us right now. How do we feel about that? How do we Americans feel about that? Are we okay with it? I ask. Because chances are, every single one of you out there is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. Oh, I know what many of you are thinking. Not me. I'm a Republican. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that most of us are citizens of the first country in the world founded on the principle that government is of the people, for the people, by the people, that we the people can govern ourselves better than any king can govern us, right? C.S. Lewis, um, he was a proud British citizen, and uh, he was born in Northern Ireland. Um, He died, interestingly, on... um, the same day that John F. Kennedy died. But he was a Democrat, a lower D Democrat as well, a great admirer of democracy. I'm not, now, it sounds like I'm giving a civics lesson, but just hold, hang on with me here. 
Lewis wrote, A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy, the good reason for democracy, is that mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. The point is, in this fallen, sinful world, we need democracy because we can't put absolute power into the hands of any one person because we're all terrible sinners. And history shows that we will do nothing but abuse that power. I mean, just look at the news. There is no senator or congressman who is nearly as powerful as any king. Yet look how, in light of the sex abuse scandals, look how they abuse the limited power that they have. Democracy is necessary because we need checks on the power of rulers which is the genius of our U.S. Constitution, which is a great gift from God. This is not a civics lesson. But having said all that, our convictions concerning democracy do not and cannot apply to Jesus Christ and his kingship. I like the way Pastor John Piper puts it. If there could be a king who is not limited in his wisdom, his power, his goodness, and his love for his subjects, then monarchy would be the best of all governments. If such a ruler could ever rise in the world with no weakness, no folly, no sin, then no wise and humble person would ever want democracy again. Needless to say, this is the kind of king that we have in Christ. And if this is the kind of king that we have, then all we can do, all we ought to do, is to surrender to him. To give up the vote. (laughs) We don't get to vote anymore. When Gabriel struck Zechariah, deaf and mute, Zechariah could have responded the way maybe I would have responded or you would have responded with bitterness, with anger. Why are you doing this to me, God? But a far better response would be, why is God my king who has absolute power and authority over my life, who is completely sovereign over me, who is perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly just, who is always working for my good, who always has my best interest at heart. Why is God doing this to me? I mean, sincerely, why? What does he need to show me? What do I need to learn from this experience? How do I need to change? How do I need to become a holier person. To, to what good change 
Is he directing this deafness and muteness? Even if I don't know what the reasons are, I can trust they're good because God is my king and he's in charge here. I think that's how Zechariah responded. If so, then Zechariah's response would be, well, very similar to Mary's response here in verse 38. These are among the most beautiful words ever written down, in my opinion. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. How do you and I know what God's word is to us today? Again, going back to the Bible. John Wesley said in his commentary on these verses that when Mary speaks these words, it's very possible that that is the moment when Jesus was conceived in her womb. And he may be right. Here, Mary surrenders to the kingship of Christ. It's her choice to be sure. God isn't forcing himself on her. Mary gets a vote if you want to think of it that way. But once she says, let it be to me according to your word, she is voting to never again have a vote in her relationship with God. I mean, I'm not speaking politically. By giving up her right to vote, Mary is also giving up the life that she knew and the life that she had anticipated since she was a little girl. I'm going to marry Joseph and we're going to have this many kids and we're going to live right here in Nazareth and things are going to go just like this. And I know this because that's how my mom's life was and that's how her mother's life was and her mother before that. They all sort of lived the same way and that's how I'm going to live This is the life that she planned, the life that her family planned, the life that her future in-laws planned for her, the life that she dreamed of. And now everything, and because of what God is doing, everything was going to be different from now on. Mary is embracing a potentially frightening, uncertain, unknowable future unknowable to her. I mean, God certainly knew what was in her future. And Mary is embracing a future that's going to cause great heartache and suffering at times. As the prophet Simeon points out in Luke chapter two, when they bring the the infant Jesus to be dedicated in the temple and Simeon says to Mary and a sword will pierce your soul also. And what does Mary get? For all her trouble. She gets Jesus. And that's enough for her. So my question to us, brothers and sisters. Is Jesus enough for you and me? Father God. Help us to be. Faithful like Mary in clinging to your word, in trusting in your word, 
in dedicating our life to your word. Help us to be faithful to you even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when our future is uncertain. Even when we're scared. Help us cling to you in faith. Help us trust in you. Knowing that you've got the future in our hands. That you are always working for our good. So that we can say, here am I. Your servant, let it be to me according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on a Sunday morning, I hope that you will feel welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have a nine o'clock acoustic contemporary service, and then we have a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us.